yet amongst all those rare discoveries and curious pieces I find in the fabric of man, I do not so much content myself as in that I find not, that is, no organ or instrument for the rational soul, for in the brain, which we term the seat of reason, there is not anything of moment more than I can discover in the crany of a beast, and this is a sensible and no inconsiderable argument of the inorganity of the soul, at least in that sense we usually so receive it. Thus are we men, and we know not how. There is something in us that can be without us, and will be after us, though it is strange that it hath no history, what it was before us, nor can tell how it entered in us. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is the world's smallest book club about big books, except when it's not, which this is one of those times where we have chosen a short text to help fill out our uh, spare, sparse year of podcasts. Um, we have chosen a text, though, which is short, but perhaps denser <laughs> than most other texts we've read. I read a tweet recently, um, or some months ago, or a year ago. It could be at any time in the last five years, to be honest, from Brandon Taylor, <laughs> the novelist and critic, who talks about we should bring back uh, derision for the dilettantes. You know, we should stop catering to these people who know nothing and like everything. And I felt like he was sort of talking about our podcast. Because <laughs> I have. <laughs> I have often discussed the ways in which you and I skim along the surface of many beautiful things without ever totally knowing what we're doing. If that wasn't true, and on some episodes maybe it's not, but if it wasn't true, it certainly is for this text, um, for these two texts, actually, and for this author. We have decided to tackle, um, with no appropriate background in history or literature, to be frank, <laughs> Thomas Brown's Religio Medici and Urn Burial. And I'm probably saying both those a little wrong, especially the Latin part, but those are two of his most famous texts. And I think, Bill, you wanted to give Urn Burial its full name, correct? I did. So Religio Medici, which is Latin for the religion of a doctor, that's the whole title of the text. But Urn Burial's full proper title is, and I'm not going to say this Greek word correctly, but I don't care enough to look it up, Hydriotaphia, Urn Burial, or... A Discourse of the Sepulchral Urns Lately Found in Norfolk. And at least on the 1658 edition, the biggest word is Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm, I want to give some context to this, to these texts and to Thomas Brown's life, um, maybe more than we usually do, but still not sufficient for understanding who this writer is and maybe the importance of some of his digressions and so forth because of course um and this is true of any you know it's a it's a text it's a couple of texts from the 17th century so knowing more history and knowing more similar texts from the time period always helps always always but with sir thomas brown especially the man is built out of illusions and digressions um 
so I think the more that you know, the the more the more in, enjoyment you get out of his work. But of course, he was. I say of course as if everyone knows Thomas Brown. Maybe they do. I don't know. But um, he was revered and even sort of despised at the time of his life for his ornate style. I think sometimes we read Shakespeare or John Donne or someone like Thomas Brown who is put in that category of writer. We read them and we think, wow, 17th century writers sure do talk in a weird way. Well, honestly, especially for Thomas Brown, a lot of their contemporaries looked at them and said, wow, you guys speak in a pretty bizarre way. (laughs) So, for example, (laughs) for example, apparently um, Sir Thomas Brown, who was a doctor of medicine and a a learned man on many subjects, he um, he basically inspired the Royal Society to plain spokenness. They actually discussed how they should avoid an ornate Latinate way of speaking because of Thomas Brown. So he, you know, he was kind of recognized even in his time as being an interesting read, let's say. Um, But we'll give some context to his life. Um, I'll do a little of that and Bill, just jump in where you need to, because I think it's it's pretty brief. Um, Like Samuel Johnson did a short life of Thomas Brown, you know, in the 18th century. And it's really not, I mean, he mostly talks about other people in relation to Thomas Brown. Um, And even says like, Thomas Brown, you know, epitomizes the dream of all authors, which is to leave a great work behind and nothing of yourself. But we know a little bit. He was born in 1605. He was raised by apparently at least part part of the time by like a, a mother and a sort of wicked stepfather, like a, a ne'er-do-well. And there's at least one one piece of information I, I stole from Melvin Bragg. <laughs> I hope people might, might not know who he is. But anyway, from Melvin Bragg, that he um apparently, like, his 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 mother and stepfather, like, not only spin down his inheritance until friends and family step in, his inheritance from his father, they just take off to Ireland and never come back. They, like, put him in school, they go to Ireland, and he never sees them again, and he's totally fine with it. Um so yeah, so he's born in 1605, has kind of an interesting childhood, um, apparently as a child in London and then in Winchester at school. He's literally like going into the fields and collecting, you know, herbs and grasses and like mixing little potions or, you know, medicines of types. He goes on to what will become Pembroke College, and then he goes abroad to become a doctor of medicine. Um, he goes to a few different places, comes back, settles in Norwich, marries... And then actually he writes Religio Medici, which I'm going to have Bill kind of summarize in a second. He writes that sometime in the 1630s and it's, it's kind of passed out all around his, to his friends and acquaintances. There's apparently like actually to this day, like seven or eight extant manuscripts. So like it was a well kind of like, you know, it was, it was a private document, but it kind of got around in a really successful way. And then in 1642, um, a publisher in London just publishes it and publishes it without his permission. Copyright and everything else worked far differently back then. And, um, you know, Thomas Brown's mad because he, 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 he really, like, you know, this is, again, Bill, you probably know more than I do. This is the era of, like, the Thirty Years' War, right? The coming English Civil War. This is the time of great religious, you know, um, passion and violence. And a lot of his ideas are kind of about you know, ecumenical, <laughs> you know, feel goodery kind of squishy centrist stuff. And so he, um, he maybe even flipped with heresy. So anyway, so it's published in 1642. He's pretty upset about it. And then in 1643, he publishes a, uh, a revised corrected author's edition. So that's kind of the context that he's kind of, his hands kind of forced and it makes him an absolute star. It's famous at the time of his living, 
Um, it goes into a bunch of publications and it kind of makes him the famous Dr. Thomas Brown. He becomes Sir Thomas Brown later in life when he's almost dead. But that's kind of the context of the book. Bill, what is, what is, and there's two texts we're talking about, Religio Medici and Urn Burial. Urn Burial comes later. Um, but what, what are, what are these two texts about at a kind of just a reading level, Bill? Well, you know, life, the universe, and everything. Um, but responding more reasonably, <laughs> Religio Medici, or Religio Medici, if he was pronouncing it in the proper Roman style, I think that's right. I don't know. I took a bit of Latin. Sometimes I like to pretend I remembered any of it. I didn't. Um, but is, so again, it's the religion of a doctor. Um, I guess, this is something I know because of this book, uh, but I guess there was a sort of stereotype or slander or however you want to think about it that a lot of doctors were atheists, right? And as Joel pointed out, this is a time of significant religious tumult in England in particular, which is where he lived most of his life and certainly where he did all his writing. Uh, the English Civil War, I looked up the dates to make sure I was right, are 1642 to 1651. So when Re Religio Medici is coming out, that is the beginning of it, you know, right when it's starting to get going. Um, and there's going to be all that terrible conflict between, like, the Cromwellians, you know, iconoclasts going around and breaking all of the statues and destroying all the stained glass windows and all that jazz. Um, so it's, it's a time of significant religious tumult. And um, Thomas Brown decides to write an answer to basically the question, how is it that I am both a doctor and a Christian? Or, as we might think of it in modern terms, how do I square science and religion, right? And he starts there, and he ends up talking about everything that has ever happened in the whole world in about 90 <laughs> pages. Um, I'm obviously exaggerating, but it's a wide-ranging discussion. What it really is is a really long blog post, um, you know, like the old-school golden age of blogging, where the same blogger would talk about, you know, a cool video game that came out, and also whatever book they read last week, and then have 2,000 words about you know, some sort of major philosophical idea, and then go right back to talking about video games or something. That's kind of what Sir Thomas Brown is doing only about medicine, and then all of the great questions of Christianity and how we should relate to each other as human beings. I am not going to try to summarize what he talks about, because there's so much of it. But that is sort of the central animating question, is how do I square being a doctor and therefore a scientist with being a Christian, and what does that mean for me? Uh, what does it mean for me in particular? Because one of the things people talk about a lot is how this is actually a a very personal book. Uh, this is not an abstract book about, you know, how one might do this. This is about how I, Sir Thomas Brown, do this, which is part of why I'm referring to it as a blog post, because that's really very much the same vibe. Uh, Urn Burial is a shorter and much more focused text. Uh, it is a discussion of, uh, first, a collection of funerary urns that were found at, like, his buddy's backyard. Uh, <laughs> in Norfolk. Um, that text was published in 1658. I don't remember exactly when the urns were found, but right around that time frame. Uh, describing these urns specifically, then and then also talking about funerary rites in general, all around the whole world, to the extent of his knowledge. And then particularly towards the end, a much broader discussion of just, you know, death and the problem of death and how we deal with death as people. Um, Religio Medici wanders a lot, Urn Burial is a little more focused, but particularly by the end of Urn Burial, he's also engaging in digressions about everything related to death. Um, uh, Thomas Brown is one of those guys from this time frame who made up a lot of words, which at the time, you think about it, like, what a weird, audacious thing to do, but all of them stuck. 
Um, I don't have the full list in front of me because I think it's about 100 words, but like hallucination. Yeah, Thomas Brown made that an English word. It was not previously an English word. I think suicide's one of his too, isn't it? Well, I think so. Here, so here's the ones that I I'm pretty certain of. Um, it's possible that he's had some coinages assigned to him that were you know predated um, his own writing, but the ones that I've come across multiple times, most famously, um, they include electricity and medical, <laughs> mm. but they also include indigenous, ferocious, migrant, coma, anomalous, prairie, ascetic carnivorous and ambidextrous so that's i mean i feel like in you know ninth grade english in high school that's one of the things you're taught about shakespeare right um who of course is is you know he's he, he you know predates thomas brown a little bit but you know they're they're almost contemporaries right they're in the same field um but th- that's that is that is one of the same claims to fame thomas brown has is that he's so good with language and he's such a master of you know, he speaks like six languages fluently. He, of course, masters Latin and Greek. Um, and so a lot of his words, of course, are these kind of Latinate or Greek words that he just a- anglicizes. He even jokes, apparently, at one point, I read this in an article, that if, if he keeps going the way he has been going with all of his fancy words, essentially, his Latinate words, he, he basically will just make English into Latin, um, which is a good <laughs> sense of maybe like... <laughs> It's a good sense of maybe how dense some of his prose can be because it's such beautiful writing, but it, it, it really is a slow reading. But I want to, um, before I lose this thread, I want to come back to your blog post idea because I feel like every writer who sort of extols Thomas Brown, they talk about him as sort of this, you know, early modern modernist, right? That he is sort of this predecessor to all of these great writers, including Virginia Woolf, you know, Borges, um, and I mean, it, it kind of the list would go on and on as far as these, you know, like, I mean, the romantics adored him. They thought he was so original. And of course, part of the romantics, you know, Tom, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Wordsworth, um, Coleridge especially loved Thomas Brown. And what's interesting, of course, is that what you said about the person, the personal aspect of his writing, that's partly what they love is that he's digressive and elusive and he's a genius of style, so forth, so on. But this is, in some ways, one of the first really famous personal essays. It's a spiritual biography. It has a lot of, you know, orthodox arguments in it. It has a lot of philosophy in it. But it really is like you get an idea of who Thomas Brown is almost first and foremost in a way that hasn't really been popular before this, definitely not in a nonfiction style. So you have that kind of personal essay element, which truly is, like you said, a giant blog post. And then, but he's also doing this like stream of consciousness and elusive kind of heavy, elusive work that of course totally anticipates or whatever um, the modernists, you know, like Eliot and Joyce who build a lot of their meaning around alluding to other things that you're supposed to just know about (laughs) somehow. Um, Anyway, so, but there's a sense about Thomas Brown, which I find it's like the great paradox of him is that he is so 17th century, right? He is like uh, the epitome of universal learning and the Renaissance man. He's a master of English prose and yet he practices medicine his whole life. Like he, he runs a practice, right? And he even talks about, he has to write in these snatches of time between, you know, having a family and, (laughs) you know, seeing people's warts and stuff, right? He's still a doctor. And so uh, you have that kind of ultra 
Renaissance man, 16th century universal learning, you know, Church of England, stalwart royalist, whatever. And yet somehow, like, that's what makes him who he is. And yet he also has this incredible modern allure that are just somehow smashed together. And I, I, I don't know, you can't really pull them apart from each other, but I do find it fascinating that, like, that's part of the engine of what makes him fascinating is you are totally immersed in the mind of someone you know, from the 17th century, and yet you feel like you're encountering all these relevant ways of of thinking about faith and thinking about literature and thinking about kind of every, like you said, everything. So that's kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of ranting, but I, I do, I find it like to be a really um, impossible combination that I haven't come across before. And everyone, including you, everyone seems to cast him in this modern light. They want to modernize him in some ways. But yeah, so let's, I also think, don't you think, um, even his um, his joking about everyone thinks doctors are atheists. I mean, the part of that that's still relevant, right? That's still kind of this like most smart Christians they keep having this conversation, right? Like Madeline Lingle even was big on religion and science aren't two different things, you know? They're t- they're two ways to talk about the same thing or what? Like so he's he's even like kind of preempting all of these discussions we've been having for you know four hundred years, don't you think? Absolutely. I uh, this came up. I was uh. I was talking to a colleague at work the other day, and uh, they asked me what I was doing this afternoon, this evening, and I said, I'm recording a podcast, and then wished I hadn't said that, because as I think you have written before, there's nothing in the world like more awful than admitting you have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I kept talking to them, and they were like, well, what are you reading? And I was like, oh, God. Uh, Well, (laughs) and I tried to summarize it very quickly, something similar to what I just said on the podcast a moment ago. And they were like, well, I think this is very much still a live debate, right, between religion and science. And I was like, yeah, no, that's that's the point, is this, we didn't ever stop having this debate. Obviously, the specifics vary, but um, this idea that, like, our scientists and, and our, I don't hear it as much about doctors, but presumably one could find people saying that, like, that somebody who's very into science must therefore not also be a person of faith, and a person who's very into faith must therefore not also be interested in science, I think is very much still a live issue today. And uh, he's prefiguring all of those same discussions, uh, sometimes with weird specificity. He has a whole bit talking about some of this, you know, some of the otter stories in the Bible and about how he has to, he, he believes them literally even as he knows that it contradicts what he knows about the world. And he kind of moves past it. He's just like, and that's just what I do. But that's an issue that, Uh, particularly maybe not so much right today, but like back in the late nineties and early two thousands when we were still always fighting about evolution still, you know, that was always the thing that you'd hear people be talking about is like, well, how can you be a scientist and also believe in, you know, God creating the world in seven days or whatever. And there's a range of answers to that question. As long as your arm that are very specific based on the uh, person you're talking to, but he prefigures that specific issue, which I remember mattering a lot in the nineties and early two thousands when we were all dying on the various apologetics Hills, uh, as, chatty 15 year olds joel that was a rough time sometimes you think about that that was a weird time yeah no i don't think about it at all (laughs) (laughs) it's a healthier way to live my friend (laughs) no i think i think also um so to to come back to how far-ranging his ideas are and they're and they're far-ranging despite this this, you know the brevity of the text because he really is like a master of style like I, i feel like you you have to read them slowly and you have to really kind of pay attention the whole time as a modern audience, but it's really rewarding to kind of follow the leaps of his mind. Cause at one point he's basically in a prelude to talking about the three heresies, which he has been attracted to that he has rejected, of course, cause he's very, he's very clear that he is like 
a Church of England man. He, he, like you said, he can't always reconcile the biblical account with the historical or scientific account, but that's not his job, he thinks. His job is to believe in a God who could, of course, surpass those paradoxes or whatever. And he does it in a much more beautiful way than I'm doing it right now. But the way he prefaces um, the three errors or heresies that he flirted with when he was younger is to talk about metempsychosis, right? The like kind of, you know, being born again in a different, like your soul is, you know, transposed to a new body when you're born, you know, after you die. And, um, and he talks about how he doesn't literally believe that idea per se, but that, you know, men don't live one life, they they live many lives. Heresies don't die with the heretics, they're revived again. And then he talks about the men or heresies that he has recreated himself. And it's the most beautiful idea for discussing resonance because it just, it like personifies it in this really meaningful way. Honestly, I feel like a lot of times the joy that I have in reading about big ideas or even this book right here, like what we're doing right now, is you sort of become the Leo DiCaprio meme, you know? You're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, religion versus science. It's there, right there, you know, in the, in the early modern um, text. And I, I think, but there is something that's very um, powerful about encountering these like cycle of ideas that don't ever seem to die. And he sort of quickly and beautifully touches on why that's meaningful. And then it's actually also a useful transition because like for how digressive he is, except for a few times, it's not really abrupt, right? Like you kind of just fall, you're like, oh, we're we're starting out talking about, you know, right, we're starting out talking about metempsychosis. And of course that leads to, you know, origins, universalism as a heresy. Why wouldn't it? Like that's a natural progression of thought. Oh, but of course it's not. It's an insane leap that he makes but you find yourself following him really effortlessly through these different, um, you know, yeah, these different just jumps around the map. Um, so what are some of the big ideas or little moments that, that you kind of, um, that immediately jumped out at you and that you, you kept chewing on as you finished this book? I think you mentioned this earlier, but one of the big takeaways is Thomas Brown going way out of his way to basically say, I don't really judge anybody for what they think and it's not worth getting too worked up about. And, you know, it's hard to berate people out of heresy and let's just uh, let's just talk about stuff and coexist, which is for someone writing at the beginning of and amidst the Civil War, English Civil War, that's is kind of shocking because that's not how most people were behaving in public, at least um, at this period in time. OK, so there's uh, so many good quotes here and I don't have them all handy, but there's a lot of really fun stuff here. One of my favorite lines is is this one. Let me get it exactly right here. Um, those have not only depraved understandings, but diseased affections, which cannot enjoy a singularity without a heresy, or be the author of an opinion without they be of a sect also. <laughs> and that's, that's a, it's a very funny line, first of all, but it's, I think it's also part of his point, like, we can have, there, there are people who can't disagree without making it their whole deal, is basically how I read that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, they can't have an idea without immediately thinking that they've broken from all other thought and are now going to be some sort of heretical countercultural writer and then start a whole movement about it. Whereas sometimes you've just had a thought, man, and it's okay. And maybe it's not even particularly heretical or otherwise that big a deal. Um, and that, that, that line really stuck with me. Uh, obviously, I spend a lot of time on the internet and I'm a leftist. And boy, howdy, if that doesn't describe internet leftism, right? Like we can't have an opinion without turning it into a heresy or or being part of a sect, right? 
Like, I disagree yeah. with you about this one minor issue, and so I'm going to hate everyone else around me who disagrees with me on this one minor issue and also turn it into my whole personality. Uh, that's a very, very common move in, in all political and religious movements, but um, one I see a lot in that specific frame. But his repeated uh, emphasis on basically chilling out and not being such a jerk to other people who disagree with you is a weirdly refreshing thing to read in a 17th century writer. Uh, and I, I don't know exactly what it was. Something got this book listed on the Catholic Index of Bad Books, the Index Expurgatoria yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. And I, I got to feel like it might have been that more than any of the more explicit digressions on Christian theology. This idea that, like, what if we all just calmed down <laughs> may not have sat very well with the 17th century Catholic Church. I don't know anything about the 17th century Catholic Church. Let's be very clear about that. But may not have. <laughs> Well, and it, it it is really um, refreshing in that section to hear him talk about the ways that he um, he can't get caught. So he's talking about, of course, you know, the um, Protestant versus Protestant religious turmoil that is broiling. He wrote this in the 30s, so the Civil War hadn't begun yet, maybe. But like you know, it's broiling. It's 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 becoming worse and worse. It's heating up. Um, but of course he does. He does talk about Catholics, how he disagrees with them, but that he has no problem, you know, going to their church and um, redeeming their prayers through his prayers, but like in a good brotherly way. Um, he talks about Muslims and Jews even. He talks about how he can't scorn them the way other people do in a way that is frankly like pretty surprising um, for this time period uh, or really for any time period in, in England, arguably. <laughs> Um, I do say he does say a very funny thing at the very beginning about this, though. Uh, I'm going to we're going to quote so much of this book. Like if you so recut much. this podcast, you might be able to get 30 percent of an audiobook out of this. But uh, one of the first things he says in the main text, I find myself obliged by the principles of grace and the law of mine own reason to embrace no other name but this. That is uh, the Christian. Neither doth herein my zeal so far make me forget the general charity I owe unto humanity, as rather to hate than pity Turks, infidels, and what is worse, the Jews, <laughs> rather contenting myself to enjoy that happy style than maligning those who refuse so glorious a title. Uh, which is, obviously, there's a lot going on in that. We're not going to unpack all of it. But, you know, I, I find myself obliged by the principles of grace to embrace no title but Christian, really, even though he'll later go on to say he's a Church of England man through and through. But I, I also can't forget that I own general charity to everybody, so I have to pity rather than hate Turks, infidels, and what is worse, the Jews. There's a couple of lines in here where you're like, oof, you're still not quite <laughs> oh, yeah. there, are you, pal? But no, no, at no. the same time, given the context of anti-Semitism at the time, somebody being like, what if we just pitied them? That's probably better than what a lot of these guys are saying. Uh, not saying it's oh, good. Oh, yeah, no, the, but... <laughs> uh, the, assumed, the, yeah, the, the assumed privilege of pitying is very much intact. But it, it was still, honestly, especially in the first paragraph, it was still shocking, like, because how I read that, what's worse, I read it as, like, it would be even worse to hate the Jews, given the historical re reality of Christianity. Uh, and oh, could be wrong, I think you're I probably think... right. I think you're probably right. Th there are moments I'm not sure I'm reading him correctly. He is writing in 17th century prose. So I think you're probably no, right. No, I, I agree. Well, well, that's what I kept doing, too, is I kept trying to pick apart what he was always emphasizing. But I think it, it's it's still like it's surprising to see anything about like like right off the bat. Hey, this is a this is a book about how I am a Christian and it is not a book about every how everyone who is not a Christian is the worst. I mean, he ends up being actually to your point, he ends up being quite bad at some point, quite bad, quite, quite naughty as the British would say. <laughs> about, um, 
kids have been quite kind of naughty about um you know the uh the vulgar populace you know like <laughs> like i don't hate anyone um individually but i hate the masses <laughs> like at one point i have to find a quote later but he one point he says that but i do think you could honestly with this book for um big ideas that are fun and this will um, be a lot of reading for me in a second um, as we kind of to talk about ideas but I actually think his whole metempsychosis idea which I want to I want to quote from him first that he talks about how ideas don't die and he talks about how they take life again within certain people you know he specifically says um, man is not only himself there have been many Diogenes and as many Tinians though but few of that name Men are lived over again. So that's his own kind of idea. And then, of course, what it does to the reader, to someone like me, is it sort of immediately puts me in mind. Every time I, I come across like a, a thought that I like of his, one of my you know, uh, reflexes is to connect it to someone who has since his time or before his time said the same thing. So I want to run through a few of these and I won't, I won't, you know, I won't batter our listeners too much, but I'm going to run through, through a few of these because I think it's actually a way to like pick out some of his, you know, for me, um, most intriguing ideas. So he, at one point, um, he's talking about goodness knows what actually, who knows what he's talking about at this point. <laughs> but, um, it really recalled me to um, Gerard Manley Hopkins' I idea of inscape, um, or what philosophy has talked about as hexicity, which is sort of like the way in which a thing or qual you know a property or quality of a thing um, is is unique enough to describe it as this one, like it's this inner essence, but it's not like essence. It's a little more, I think, physical in some way. Anyway, he without having read, of course, Gerard Manley Hopkins, although he read probably the same folks that Hopkins had, he says, I hold, moreover, that there is a phytognomy or physiognomy not only of men, but of plants and vegetables, and in every one of them, some outward figures which hang as signs or bushes of their inward forms. <laughs> Sorry. And signs or bushes of their inward forms is, is great, but... Physiognomy, of course, was kind of like, you know, that it was used really terribly in 20th century eugenics and so forth. But like it's the idea that a person's facial features or expressions, you know, it has some bearing or some, um, you know, it, it tells some story of their inner self. This is mostly something we've discarded, but it's hard to ever lose that idea completely. But what's even wilder is he's applying it to plants, right? He's applying it to not just people, but he says that tree's bushiness is a sign of some inward form, which I think is not only a fun idea, but it, it perfectly um, anticipates Gerard Manley Hopkins later. Um, did you like, by the way, his his kind of botany and his like, endless um, enjoyment of nature and, and so forth? I did. So uh, part of what's fun about it, of course, he says some funny things. Uh, I don't actually have a good example off the cuff, but some stuff that I think is is not what modern botanists would say about how these plants work. But what's interesting about it is, and he does this a lot in urn burial when he's talking about different funerary practices, he's actually really scrupulous about like telling you where his ideas come from and like citing his sources, particularly in urn burial, but here too. Right, he's not just throwing stuff out. He's trying to say this is exactly where I get this idea from. This is what I'm referencing. Oh, yeah. This is uh, basically he's citing sources for his scientific paper. Right, uh, what it is is it is the not the complete beginnings, but it is the scientific method. Right, he's he's talking about actual observations and experiments and looking at other people things people have written, and obviously. This is early enough that some of the specific conclusions he comes to, I think, are probably not correct. But they're really fascinating, right? Like, 
here's a guy who's actually trying to do science, even as he's writing this weird blog post about his personal testimony, if you'll forgive me, right? Like, uh, I really enjoyed those moments. They weren't my favorite moments of the book, I don't think, but uh, I did enjoy them quite a bit. Well, I think so. To connect it to Urn Burial, there's a great moment where he um, he says, uh, you know, there was some some uncertainty among the ancients and also maybe among um, 17th century doctors from Norwich about um, how the, quote, the seminal humor seems of a contrary <laughs> nature to fire, yet the body completed proves a combustible lump. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, like whose sperm did he burn? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. how does this come about? He... <laughs> and what was what was the thought process that led to it? Like, he was like, okay, um, you know, here's a magazine and a cup. Okay, thank you. Um, now we're going to light it on fire. <laughs> well, this is one of the great things about, like, mid-second millennium uh, or science is it's just like, well, okay, well, we don't know how anything works yet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take everything that exists and I'm going to light it on fire and I'm going to see what That's happens. <laughs> and the thing is, you needed somebody to do that, right? You needed someone to do that before we can do this other stuff, right? It would have been a great century to be a 14-year-old boy in, basically. It would it have really been like the best century <laughs> to be a 14-year-old boy. We're like, ah, oh, you know, Thomas, stop burning ye old church. How do we know if God is in this church, if it, if it burns? You know, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think about this all the time with my one of my minor obsessions is like late uh, 19th, early 20th uh, horror fiction, weird fiction, right? And all of them have this weird scientist who's doing weird science experiments in his basement who like is a lawyer or something for his day job, right? And you, we just don't get that anymore, you know? We get hobbyists who are working on specific projects, but we don't really have somebody who is in his basement, like, trying to push the boundaries of science by throwing random things at each other at an Erlenmeyer flask and seeing what happens. And there are good reasons for that. A lot of people died. But it's, it's, a, it's a fun time in science, you know? Like, just, hey, nobody's ever seen what happens if we take this plant and this other plant, mix it together, and snort it. And maybe we should figure that out, you know? <laughs> Well, and it's it, well, honestly, whenever you so that you know the kind of this is the, the maybe the classic take on it, but whenever you dive into that, that kind of mad scientist as the only scientist in this day and age, it, it makes a lot more sense why alchemy was taken so much more seriously. Like alchemy was what they were doing; they were art, like they were alchemists trying to, you know, and and uh, honestly, they were also successful. They do end up extricating certain essences from burning things and so forth, right? Like no one ever got gold to come out of you know thin air, but they were doing these insane experiments that transformed material into new material. Um, but I do love that one of those experiments at some point was lighting sperm on fire. It's a very brave decision. This is a book that both both has like serious discussions of religious issues and also discusses what happens if you light jet on fire. And that's the book. <laughs> <laughs> so to give some of that whiplash, though, as far as our own conversation, the places we just went, one of the people, and I, I'm, I'm being forced to do a course right now in leadership at my job that definitely is why I thought of this, but... One of the people who um, honestly rung a bell um, when I was reading through Thomas Brown's uh, Religio Medici, it, it's quite early on, I think, um, or no, it's in the second part. But anyway, there's a section where he genuinely says something. He basically sums up all of Brene Brown's work in one paragraph. Right? <laughs> Brene Brown, the great you know, self-help artist. Maybe she's – I mean, honestly, she's – 
I know people who have taken her work seriously and they, they seem to have been helped by it. But anyway, she has a lot of, you know, epigrams about how to improve your life. And he sort of captures all of it in this one really honestly moving paragraph, which again, I'm, I'm going to quote at length here. So he writes, "'Tis the general complaint of these times, and perhaps those of past, that charity grows cold, which I perceive most verified in those which most do manifest the fires and flames of zeal. For it is a virtue that best agrees with coldest natures, and such as are complexioned for humility. But how shall we expect charity towards others when we are uncharitable to ourselves? Charity begins at home, is the voice of the world, yet is every man his greatest enemy, and as it were, his own executioner. So if there's any substance to Brene Brown, it's in her work on shame and the ways in which um, the only line I've ever remembered from her is that, you know, she asked, do you ever speak to yourself the way you would to someone you love? Or would you speak to someone you love in the terrible way you speak to yourself? And the answer, of course, is hopefully no. But honestly, <laughs> he takes all of her, like, nonsense sociological research and condenses it into this beautiful paradox of the way to love others most is to, you know, first kind of give yourself a break, but also to kind of, like you said earlier, this is the great kind of renaissance science, you know, um, stuff we've been talking about, to pull back on your own passion, right? Your passion is getting in the way of virtue. Um, and of course, the virtue in question is one of charity or love, uh, which I found, again, you know, kind of renders all of Brene Brown um, obsolete. That's another one of his main ideas. He talks a lot about how it's important to, like I said, chill out. And I meant that both in terms of not get mad at people who disagree with you, but also about how it's kind of important to not be overwhelmed by passions. Um, he's talking about why he's fine hanging out with Catholics, um, even though there's cause of passion between us. You know, by his sentence, I stand excommunicated. Heretic is the best language he affords me, yet can no ear witness I ever returns to him the name of Antichrist, man of sin, or whore of Babylon. And this is the this next part is what I actually wanted to get to, but I think the context is important. It is the method of charity to suffer without reaction. Those usual satyrs and invectives of the pulpit may perchance produce a good effect on the vulgar, whose ears are opener to rhetoric than logic. Yet do they in no wise confirm the faith of wiser believers, who know that a good cause needs not to be patroned by a passion, but can sustain itself upon a temperate dispute. Um, so that's connected to the thing you were just saying, but it, it connects to the things we were talking about earlier, right? Like one of his big ideas is that it's important to discuss these things and get into your disagreements and also move your life. It, not caught up in like the, the whims and vicissitudes of vulgar passion, but rather in like temperance and a certain amount of charity, which involves not getting all that worked up about things sometimes, which is again, a, a weird thing for a guy to say in 1635. And I appreciate it. No, I think he, he really does. It's, it's just really hard not to read this book, which, you know, which covers, like you said, you know, life, death, the universe and everything. It, it, it It's hard not to read it and continually attach it to current issues, either globally, nationally, personally. He does go through the range. It's, it's why the, the book, I think, um, the texts, all of his texts have survived so long, is he, he continually sort of recasts things in language that makes you see it anew, which is sort of the goal of all literature. And I, I, I thought about how, um, so in this one part, he's trying to talk about how do we deal with the poor? You know, what, what do we owe the poor? And he's trying to talk about 
you know, the, the, um, commands of scripture and doctrine. And then he kind of just cuts to the quick as he always does. And he, he says, he is rich who hath enough to be charitable. And it is hard to be so poor that a noble mind may not find a way to this piece of goodness. He that giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord, which is a quote from the Bible. There is more rhetoric in that one sentence than in a library of sermons. And indeed, if those sentences were understood by the reader with the same emphasis as they're delivered by the author, we needed not those volumes of instruction, but might be honest by an epitome. There's just a way like where he, 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 I don't know, he does. He kind of, he himself is sort of always quelling passions, but I think he has one of those um, sensible but brilliant minds that sort of reinvigorates a seriousness of thought that is somehow based on the sort of joy of being curious, right? Like the, the, the lifeblood of, of all of his, you know, philosophy and religious stuff and his anatomy interests. It all comes from this unbridled curiosity. And I think that's what's infectious, but also um, his curiosity ends with these sorts of, these sorts of sentences, which really, this is the part of the podcast where I'm going to maybe turn the, the spotlight on us a little bit. I, I found it personally in some ways at times very convicting um, in terms of, okay, what do I believe? You know, I'm, I'm a Christian um, and I'm someone who also finds myself struggling at times with some of the same things he does. I mean, it's, it's, I love that one of the heresies he is scared by um, scared by being attracted to is origins universalism, right? You know, <laughs> there are no new debates. And so I, I, I find that when you are in contact with a mind that is this curious and also, you know, he kind of does a lot of humble bragging, but he really does seem to be transparent. It feels like, like you said, like, like a blog post, like how a blog post is transparent is the same way he's being transparent. He's just thinking in front of you. And when you get caught up in that, it is very difficult to resist, you know, your own kind of self interrogation. And so to put you on the spot a little bit, and I'll put myself there too, I'm curious if anything struck a little deeper on a personal level or if there were ideas that you are hoping to take forward in your you know, continued self-examinations and, and so forth. Yeah, so there's a couple sections here that um, I found fairly personally moving. I, I don't know if the book maybe hit me quite as hard as it did you. I, I think that's fair. But there's a couple bits. This is connected to what we were just talking about. Uh, so I might spend a little bit of time doing some setup here. But he's talking about charity again. Uh, he says, There is another offense unto charity which no author hath ever written of, and as few take notice of, and that's the reproach not of whole professions, mysteries, and conditions, but of whole nations, wherein by opprobrious epithets we miscall each other, and by an uncharitable logic form a dis- from a disposition in a few conclude a habit in all. He quotes a sort of doggerel poem about stereotypes in different nations. And then he says, St. Paul that calls the Cretans liars doth it but indirectly, and upon quotation of their own poet, it is as bloody a thought in one way as Nero's was in another. For by a word we wound a thousand, and at one blow assassine the honor of a nation. He spends a little bit more time talking about how it's basically bad to stereotype whole groups of people based on where they come from, which again, this is 1635, that's pretty cool. But he moves pretty quickly from that to talking about vice and virtue in general, and then about just judgment between human beings uh, after that. 
uh, we're talking about a page from where I was. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But no man can justly censure or condemn another, because indeed no man truly knows another. This I perceive in myself, for I am in the dark to all the world, and my nearest friends behold me but in a cloud. Those that know me but superficially think less of me than I do of myself. Those of my near acquaintance think more. God, who knows me truly, knows that I am nothing, for he only beholds me, and all the world who looks not on us through a derived ray or a trajection of a sensible species, but beholds the substance without the help of accidents, and the forms of things as we their operations. Further, no man can judge another, because no man knows himself. For we censure others, but as they disagree from that humor which we fancy laudable in ourselves, and commend others, but for that wherein they seem to quadrate and consent with us. So that in conclusion, all is but that what we all condemn, self-love. There's a lot going on in that. Um, first of all, I love, again, his scientific language here, right? God knows me truly, knows that I am nothing, for he's the only one who beholds me directly, not through light or a trajectory of a sensible species, which if I understand that correctly, which I might not, he's talking about like not the... Let me just look up what this footnote here says. Yeah, the transmission of the material image of an object to the mind, right? He's saying God only views us accurately, which includes not through, like, the lenses of physical organs of sight and such, right? That's cool. Again, he's this is the same guy who's talking a lot about both science and religion the whole time. But some of this stuff about, um, you know, one person judging another and the, the sort of importance of both charity and self-knowledge and the relationship between the two, I found somewhat personally convicting. I've been, without going into a lot of detail, I moved across the country for a new job recently as a public defender. I've been a public defender for a while, but I have a new context in a different court system. And without going into detail, uh, I find this new context immensely frustrating because I think the uh, system is deeply screwed up here in a way that it wasn't in my other place. Uh, not that I like everything that happened in the other place. And I've been finding it easy to fall into some bad habits of just bad-mouthing everybody around me and being a jerk. <laughs> I've mostly kept it to myself, but I can see there's definitely a trajectory here where I can start uh, being meaner than I like to be. I usually like to think of myself as being fairly nice to people. Um, and s some of this discussion about how to judge other people and how not to do it and the relation between that and our own awareness of our own deficiencies and virtues, I found helpful, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't know how much more I want to say about that, but I thought that was, was good. Bill Coberly, colon, Thomas Brown is good, period. I don't know, Joel, I don't know if that was any, I don't know if that was anything, but there it's we a, go. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was great, actually. I think, um, I think the book, the book did hit me harder in some ways, maybe, um, and, and I think probably, probably just because I, I I don't know if the book hit me harder. Um, I think it's because not that you aren't, or other people aren't. I, I also am obsessed with death. I, and this will be a good transition to actually earn burial. But I, I remember as a kiddo, which I've told you this story, I, I'm sure who knows how many times, but, um, you know, I, I, um, I used to actually not be scared of, of dying of oblivion. Because I was raised in the Christian household, and you kind of, I drank in the idea of heaven, sort of, you know, with my mother's breast milk kind of a thing, right? Like, I I sort of unconsciously or, you know, unwittingly believed things before I questioned them. And so I used to have this, like, not even, like, totally sleeping nightmare at nights when I was, like, 
you know, anywhere from eight to 10 and maybe younger. Um, this idea of eternity terrified me, right? The eternity of never endingness. Like there's something about the, the bigness of that, that really scared me. Um, and I couldn't put it into words and my sister to be very personal here, I guess, but my sister used to like, you know, she's older than me, but quite a bit. Um, she used to, you know, read the last chapter of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia to me, right? Like it was like, it was like that level of kind of like classic, like childhood, you know, fears and so forth. Anyway, but I, I've, I'm still sort of obsessed with death and obsessed with the ways in which we avoid thinking about death and um, I, have a lot, I have a lot of friends who say they aren't scared to die. And I, I frankly just don't believe them. You know, um, I'm writing about this somewhere else right now, so I don't want to step on it too much. But I think a lot of times they have a hard time imagining what it actually means to kind of unmake yourself. Um, and I, I guess I feel like I don't. So, But all I have to say is I think that he is as obsessed as death, as obsessed with death as I am, and maybe much more so to be honest, but he, he really does seem to have this joyful Christian disposition toward it that it, it could totally be a front. I have no doubt, and he even references it, I have no doubt that at times he feels, you know, the dread of fear, uh, sorry, the dread of death. Um, in the second text, especially, Earn Burial, he talks about oblivion in a way that makes me think he fears oblivion. Um, but of course, he discounts oblivion. And so he has a couple of quotes here that, you know, he talks about that how dying is to be a kind of nothing for a moment, to be within one instant of a spirit. And he has this great analogy where he compares like humans to amphibians. We sort of are in the material world and in the spirit world. We breathe of both both worlds simultaneously. And death is a transition from that amphibian world, which he also compares to being in the womb, which is a great comparison for a doctor to make since we are essentially are amphibians in the womb, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one has explained to me yet, actually, how we go from breathing in water to breathing in air. I, no one's <laughs> made that transition for me yet. So it's, a, it's again, his beautiful stacking of metaphors. Um, we're in an amphibian state, such as we are in the womb. And that dying brings us to the next state of being. Um, he even says at one point, you know, I am not so much afraid of death as ashamed thereof. And you can hear, I think, sometimes the braggadocio of a younger man, potentially. Um, he goes on to say, "'Tis the very disgrace and ignominy of our natures that in a moment can so disfigure us that our nearest friends, wife, and children stand afraid and start at us. The birds and beasts of the field that before in a natural fear obeyed us forgetting all allegiance, begin to prey upon us, right? So he sort of hates the way which be, we, we seem to become just matter when actually we're becoming spirit. I, I, I set all of this up because I really did feel called out by this. And I this is not a, you know, it's not a Christian podcast. We're not, you know, hawking any wares or throwing any Bibles. But, but truthfully, like him, I consider myself someone who basically simplistically accepts the big questions of the Christian faith, right? And whether or not you do, uh, like not you, Bill, but you know, like the, the listener, I, I think there's a way in which his belief system is so, um, it's so coherent, but so, so kind of joyfully worn on, on his sleeves, right? The feelings he has for it, he, he has written an entire book about. And I, I felt convicted personally by the idea of like, a Christian, which, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, biblical texts about this. <laughs> a Christian is not supposed to fear death in the same way we used to. Um, he even says, 
you know, he kind of he has this great way in which he always connects things to antiquity. And he says at one point, you know, uh, the, the, a fear of death is connected to loving life too much, which is a hard idea that I won't get into too much. But, you know, he says, for a pagan, there may be some motives to be in love with life. But for a Christian to be amazed at death, I see not how he can escape this dilemma, that he is too sensible of this life or hopeless of the life to come. And I won't get into too much more. I probably already, you know, shared sh- shared more than I should have. But I did feel called out by that that specific line. He is too sensible of this life, or hopeless of the life to come. The only caveat, of course, is that this was written when, you know, this poor young brilliant man. You know, he's so he's so wifeless. He talks about how he can't imagine loving a woman as much as he loves his friends. That's how not married he is at this point, which I think means, you know, he has less to lose in this life by his own death. Um, Not that marriage or kids are everything, but I think he's been a gallivanting young man going across Europe and it's possible he is by nature of his wandering genuinely untethered from life in a way that, you know, I wasn't at 25. But I do think that's a good transition to earn burial which is all about death. I mean, the whole the whole thing, he's really obsessed with death, period. But Earned Burial is about, first of all, a very practical matter of death, which is how do we care for the dead and how do we bury the dead? And I'll just, well, let's, let's just cut to a spoiler, Bill. Do you think he's in favor of burying or burning? You know, I'm. it's weird that I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, given how much time he spends discussing it. But I, I think he's really attracted, at least, to the idea of cremation, um, there's the really great line where he talks about how. Let me let me just quote it. Give me a moment. Um, he says, uh, "To be gnawed out of our graves, to have our skulls made drinking bowls, and our bones turned into pipes, to delight and sport our enemies, our tragical abominations, escaped in burning burials. Urnal interments and burnt relics lie not in fear of worms, or to be inherited for serpents. In carnal sepulture, corruptions seem peculiar unto parts." And some speak of snakes out of the spinal marrow. Uh, and then he goes on some more talking about how the great thing about, you know, cremation is it saves your body from all these sort of horrible, disgusting things that are going to happen to it. And these not just disgusting, but uh, desecratory is not a word to my knowledge. But you know what I mean? Um, like all the ways podcast, that your body can be. It definitely be... is. No, this podcast, <laughs> desecratory is a word. But, you know, all the ways that your body can be desecrated, not only by the sort of undignified things that can happen to it. He talks a bit about how, like, they dug up a body out of a churchyard and found that the fat had leaked out of it in such a way that it turned into concrete, (laughs) basically. Which I read a little bit, somebody talking about how he's the first person to actually have scientifically noticed this thing that happens to bodies. Everyone else was too squicked out or not paying enough attention. Because, again, he's a scientist, right? I don't mean to keep banging that drum, but it's a crucial part of how these books work. But, you know, he talks about how you can escape all of that and also the ways that, like, you're, like I said, bad people can come dig you up and, you know, make drinking bowls out of your skulls, right? How all of that can be evaded through cremation. And so I, I think he's very attracted to it. And he he also, however, bemoans... So one of the great things in this this essay is the tension between him wanting to just talk about, like, what it is good to do with bodies and what is great best to discover when you're doing, like, an archaeological dig. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's yeah. constantly talking about how 
really cool it is when you find like old tombs and can dig them up and learn about the people who were there and figure out whether they were men or women and how old they were and so on by examining their bones. And you can't really do that with urns, although it's cool when in the urns they put all the coins and stuff in there. Like, that's cool because we can learn about the <laughs> the coinage and what they mattered about, even though it's silly to pay the ferryman. He, he, he doesn't actually talk crap about most of these uh, traditions, but he does take a moment to sort of make fun of the idea of putting money in somebody's tomb or urn so they can pay Charon, which is funny. What The things he'll actually be snarky about versus the things he won't is hard to predict. Um, so I, I think that tension between those two things, him as sort of the archaeologist and him as the person thinking about, he never says it, but basically what he would like to have to his body is one of the fu fundamental tensions running through urn burial that I think makes such an interesting text. So all that to say, I'm not sure I have a straight answer to this question, but I think he's probably generally in favor of cremation for himself, even as he's not sure it's the best thing to do if you want to leave your body to be discovered by future archaeologists. How's that for my answer? I, that, that's, that's a great answer. And there's also, of course, which I don't know enough about, and he doesn't get into enough, you know, there's a tradition of, of Christians refusing to be burned because the body will be resurrected or, or, or so forth, so on. Um, which actually, it's not in, it's not an urn burial, but the idea of bodily resurrection, you know, he doesn't talk about it specifically in this one, but he has that great moment in uh, Religio Medici where he says, you know, when he's talking about the mysteries of faith that he believes literally, you know, he as a scientist understands that when we die, you know, we don't have the same material we had, right? He even has, again, to, to, to quote at length, he has this great quote where he says, all flesh is grass is not only metaphorically but literally true for all those creatures we behold are but the herbs of the field digested into flesh in them or more remotely carnified in ourselves. Nay, further, we are, we are what we all abhor, anthropophagi and cannibals, devourers, not only of men but of ourselves, and not in that, not in an allegory but a positive truth. For all this mass of flesh which we behold came in at our mouths. This frame we look upon hath been upon our trenchers. In brief, we have devoured ourselves. Anyway, that's a great section. But in the same area, he talks about how, okay, so that's the, how material works. It's the circle of life from Lion King. Everyone, you know, everyone knows that one. He knows that one. It's, everyone loves it. And, and yet he says, well, but of course I believe in the bodily resurrection. Look, when I, um, when I'm playing with mercury, I can separate it. And then, you know, when it gets colder or whatever it is, and then at room temperature, it reforms. And he basically looks at the camera and says, you're telling me God can't reform things, you know, as easily as I refer, re reform mercury. And so I think even, even that, that sort of materialism, it does allow him to go out on a limb in his own beliefs because, of course, you know, he knows that, and he actually talks about it somewhere too, that bur burying someone is just in some ways a longer form of burning them. Yeah, the bones might persist, but the rest of them goes away. And he does say, you know, dust is different than ashes. But I found it, I found it interesting that he kind of can't get away from this idea of like, look, the material degradation, it, you know, it's, it's, it's coming for us no matter what. Um, but it's not what matters most. It doesn't change, you know, what's to come. Um, I do think, though, speaking of ashes, we haven't, I, uh, before we go too much further, we must mention the funniest thing he writes, Bill. Oh, yeah. Which is in the, op <laughs> oh, in yes. the opening letter. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the opening letter 
about you know to his friend kind of talking about the earned burial text that is to come and i'm not going to give the whole quote but he's just you know discussing how we approach the dead or whatever he says verbatim we mercifully preserve their bones and piss not upon their ashes (laughs) (laughs) and i i needed a footnote here and there's no footnote (laughs) Yeah, I needed a footnote <laughs> to tell me: <laughs> um, Does piss upon someone's ashes mean in 17th century England what it means now? <laughs> uh, what is he being like? He sounds so formal. Do you think he's being formal? I so I think the word piss. And I don't want to swear this. I I do think it hit, it went from being a more sort of neutral way to refer to like micturation to now being not that. I think that it was a little bit more perhaps not formal, but at least more sort of something you could theoretically say in mixed company, right? Um, but it is still a weirdly specific thing to say, right? Like we take care of their bones and we don't piss on their ashes. Like, yeah, that's right. Thomas, we don't as a rule do that. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then it goes on to like unravel how like what every single person or every single culture that we have texts from at least he goes into unravel what every single one of them ever did in terms of burying people, burning people, and also how they may have been inconsistent about the afterlife and their own poetry, right? Like it's like it's like yeah. it's just the funniest transition to we're not going to piss on their ashes. In fact, we're going to talk about let's see, um, Troy, the Israel patriarchs, the Grecian funerals, something that's um, so, someone who was named Penthesilia, the Amazonian queen, uh, Herulians, Gates. Thracians, Celts, Germans, Gauls, Swedes, and of course the Egyptians, who are contrasted within the Egyptian world between the mummifying Egyptians and the fish-eating lands around Egypt that did burial at sea. That's just a small taste of the cultures he sort of riffs on through that this very short essay for how for how much it's um, for how big its range is. I, I do think it's interesting the way he talks about how. He basically has an idea that basically boils down to some of these ancient uh, Greek and Roman people claimed not to believe in resurrection, but they sure acted like it with the way they do their funerary practices, right? And the way he contrasts that with some of the stuff he's saying in both of these texts about how Christians are supposed to approach death is, I think, really, really interesting, right? Like, um, the Christians are supposed to not really worry that much about death, and uh, and, and yet it's these these sort of Romans and Greeks who are the ones who... Uh, are supposed to think death is kind of the end, but then they seem to engage in this elaborate sort of tomb building and, and putting a lot of effort into all of their uh, funerary practices in such a way as to imply that they are going to, in fact, be believing in some sort of immediate resurrection. Uh, I, I'm not enough of an anthropologist or historian to really discuss whether or not he's right about these practices, but I think that's an interesting tension he kind of tries to bring up. Is that It really is largely about the way these different cultures deal with death not just in terms of the specific functions of their funerary practices, but of how what they thought death was. Um, and it's just interesting to see him work through that. I don't know as I have a broader point to say there, but it's, it is neat to see him work through that for all these cultures. Well, it's an, it's an interesting, again, I think to the extent that you can read this book, like me, and kind of almost be like proud to be a Christian <laughs> or whatever, it's because he does recast a lot of these almost apologetics moves into a softer and more curious light, right? So like basically you're talking almost about like general revelation or this the sense that people sometimes talk about. And I, I'm out, honestly, I'm, I'm not up to date on my apologetics mumbo jumbo, but this idea that like, 
you know, there are these innate there's innate senses of how things should be or how things aren't that sort of don't square with a reality outside of like an afterlife, for instance. Um, and so what you're talking about with these practices um, in antiquity, one he talks about is, quote, they burnt not children before their teeth appeared as apprehending their bodies too tender a morsel for fire that they kindled not fire in their houses for some days after was a strict memorial of the late afflicting fire. There's some way in which they're honoring not just um, their own pain, but the pain of the person who has passed. And they're treating it in terms of this kind of ongoing reality, right? And, it, and he goes on to talk about, you know, um, there's two ideas actually that I want to I hit on. The first is kind of what we, we're already on, which is... Um, you know, it is the heaviest stone that melancholy can throw at a man to tell him he is at the end of his nature. And he even says, you know, like, we're the happiness of the next world for a Christian or for anyone, I guess, as closely apprehended as the felicities of this life. It were a martyrdom to live and unto such as considered none hereafter. It must be more than death to die. And so he's talking about, oh, if it's more than death to die, like a lot of these gestures toward posterity they almost don't make sense i mean i actually think he i actually think he thinks everyone thinks that like it in some ways it makes a lot of sense if you go into oblivion because of course the only (laughs) the only way anyone will remember you is as a memory right but he he goes on to even mock that a little bit right he says you know for the urns um that they found in in nor and um and norfolk he says you know had they made as good provision for their names as they have done for their relics, they had not so grossly erred in the art of perpetuation. But to subsist in bones and be but pyramidally extant is a fallacy in duration. Because the, the ending of the, the ending of Urn Burial is him just saying, look, I, I love this stuff and I, it's interesting. And he, you know, he, he says, like, I, I, you know, it's kind of fascinating to kind of get a glimpse of those who came before, but ultimately these are all gestures to a greater truth, which is that we are meant to persist. And in fact, they're, they're insufficient gestures, right? Oblivion will take everyone in the end, except that we'll also take no one because we're immortal. We'll go to heaven and so forth. And, but from that tension of kind of correcting antiquity and saying that it gestures at a higher truth he never loses the kernel of curiosity that makes the book good, that makes all of his writing good. Um, this is the last point kind of for me to hammer home. He talks about the way the old pagans contradicted themselves, but he also kind of includes the Christians in this contradictory debate about the afterlife specifically and says, you know, the particulars of future beings must needs be dark. Um, it's like we're having a dialogue between two infants in the womb concerning the state of this world. Um, that handsomely illustrates the ignorance of the next. So I think there's a way in which, even though he's kind of correcting them and saying there's a higher truth, he always broadens out in the end and says, look, there is a life hereafter. It's found in Christ, so forth, so on. And yet, to be too specific, to have too many ideas, is to be an infant in the womb declaring what a tree looks like. And I, I really, I love that. I mean, I love, I just, I love the way he, he goes through the terrors of death and how it shouldn't be terrifying and yet never comes down with like a thumping dogmatic stance. Um, he also, you know, um, he also calls at one point death, the king of terrors, but that's not a human there. So anyway, so I, I just, I think that, uh, you know, what you're saying about the way that 
ancient practices gesture to a higher truth. That's always true of him for everything. It's true of Mercury, which gestures of resurrection. It's true of the womb, which gestures of the life to come. It's just true, 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 true. And yet the curiosity, in spite of his certainty, is never quashed. Uh, one of the other ideas that this is not directly connected to what you said, but I thought of something. I apparently enjoyed this section so much that I didn't bother to take notes on it, so I can't tell you exactly where it is. But he has a bit in urn burial. Uh, so it's the thing you said, right? Like they, if they wrote their names down on the urn, that might have helped them persist in memory longer, you goofballs, right? But then he has the really good bit when he talks about how, and yet there's all these people we know from myth and, and history where we don't actually know their names. We just, they're referenced in the Bible just as, you know, the righteous woman from so-and-so or whatever, right? And he talks about how, who would really prefer to have, be remembered only as a name on a, on a, on a cenotaph or on a grave marker where we have no idea who this person is. We just have their initials, he even says, right? Uh, who would really prefer to be remembered only as that, as a name with no context, or rather as a nameless person whose good deeds and, like, virtues are being remembered even if we don't remember the person's name? And that's a really beautiful uh, idea, I think. And something I was thinking about, uh, or I can think about now in connection, one thing I'm going to do for the rest of this podcast is just springboard into other ideas because that's what Thomas Brown does, so I'm going to do that some. Uh, I went to Antietam, the... Uh, the big Civil War battlefield uh, recently. And uh, adjacent to the battlefield is the cemetery that they built there. It's one of the national cemeteries, which is mostly populated with uh, Union dead from Antietam, but actually they kept burying people there until the mid-20th century. And actually somebody who was killed, I think it, uh, oh, I remember, but somebody who died in the in the early 2000s was actually buried there too. So it, uh, it, there are people there from a variety of wars. Um, but of course, a lot of these are just not even full names, right? For these civil war dead. It's not like John Smith who lived from X to Y. It's just W M Jones, death, date of death, the regiment he was in. And that's all there is. Right. And I, I was thinking about that when he was talking about how sometimes all that's left is initials, right? Is here I am in this beautiful cemetery with this gorgeous monument and you know, you've just been to the battlefield and you're looking at all of these, these graves but, you know, what do I know about W.F. Jones? You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't have any idea who this guy was. I just know that he was in this regiment and died here at Antietam. Uh, yeah. As opposed to, you know, I don't know the names of any of the men in some of the Reg Civil War regiments that I can tell you about. Or I know one or two of them. But, uh, you know, I know what they did, right? Like the first Minnesota charging down Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg. Uh, those, those guys stick in my memory more than just, even though I don't know their names... Uh, than some of these guys who I, I saw their graves, right? And I saw their names, but I have no idea who they were. I don't know as I have anything terribly clever to say other than here are two things I thought about. But I thought that was a really beautiful idea. Would you rather be remembered for, like, having your name? Would you rather having, you know, Bill Coberly or Joel Cuthbertson be a name that people could talk about for 2,000 years? Or would you rather having something good you did be remembered for a long time, even if they forgot your name? Feels like I know what the right answer there is. The, the big read. Yeah, the big read specifically. Yeah, these two nameless men who did this who podcast. Did, who, yeah, who talked about everything they didn't know yeah. for two hours, twice, um, twice a year, <laughs> four times at least. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's always just uh, one of the problems with this book, and one of the things that's not problems. One of the great strengths of this book, but one of the things that makes it difficult for me to talk about, is because. He's so aphoristic, he throws these little two, three-sentence things that are so sort of meaningful and profound that you're reading it and you start unpacking it in your brain, like, what do I think about this and what is, 
you know, what other things this make me think of, that you end up pretty far away from the actual text, if that makes sense. <laughs> Which is one reason I've perhaps had a hard time articulating some thoughts in this podcast. But I'm going to keep doing it. So I have a few other springboards I'm just going to do, Joel. You can tell me to stop if you want to take control of no, the podcast go. again. No, let's go. Let's go for it. All right. He talks at one point about um, his own relationship with his own sins and the things he does wrong. And my favorite is when he says, the one sin I don't have is pride, which I don't know, buddy, maybe. Uh, you, 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 <laughs> I don't know if you can write this and say that you don't have some relationship, at least, with the sin of pride. Uh, it's a cool book, but you do sure say a lot of stuff with a lot of real certainty. But anyway, yeah, of course, pride means pride means something a little differently properly in the sin context in this time frame. But, but one of my favorite lines, and let me get the exact quote here, so give me just a moment. I did take a note on this, but now I can't find it when I pull the book up. Uh, he says he's not terrified of the sins and madness of his youth. I thank the goodness of God. I have no sins that want a name. I am not singular in offenses. My transgressions are epidemical and from the common breath of our corruption. And first of all, there are so many things I could go to from there. But this is one of the things that uh, obviously is is most powerful, I think, about Christianity, is the idea that uh, if everybody is, is guilty and has sinned, uh, one way of reading that is, you know, then everyone is terrible and everything is the worst. But another way of reading that is as a real sense of sort of fellow feeling like, oh, yeah, we're all screwed up. All of us are, in fact, screwed up. Every one of us. And that could be a sense of real, you know, comfort, right? That all of us are a disaster all of the time. And therefore, we could work together and have some charity towards each other and not feel so singularly alone all the time when we screw up which is one of the things Francis Spufford refers to as the International League of the Guilty is what the church is supposed to be, right? Um, so first of all, that was neat to see. Uh, but another thing it made me think of is a Ray Bradbury short story. Uh, I'm never more than about 10 minutes from thinking of a Ray Bradbury short story, in fairness. But there's a Ray Bradbury short story in The Illustrated Man called The Fire, yeah, the Fire Balloons, which is about a group of priests who go to Mars to try to minister to the, any Martians who might be there. And these are not the rest of Bradbury's Martians. It's a different kind of Martians uh, who it turns out are like weird globes of flame that have transcended sort of material existence. But there's this really good bit early on when the priests are talking to each other about like, what are we going to say to these guys? You know, and one of them says, well, they're going to they may have different senses and different sort of abilities. And one of the priests says, does that mean they might have unrecognizable sins? You know, sins that I actually can't even recognize as sins. And so I can't help them deal with them. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking about that as Thomas Brown says that uh, he thanks God he has no sins that want a name. Um, what would that actually be? Of course, his point is basically that there aren't, aren't any such, right? That we're all, all of our sins are epidemical. They're all everywhere. But thinking about that in terms of the Bradbury story, Bradbury story made me laugh. Of course, the, the punchline of the Bradbury story is they actually don't have any sins because they've transcended their material forms. But that's actually less interesting than the idea of... <laughs> unrecognizable sins of meeting someone who's so foreign to you, like so, so alien because they're a whole different kind of thing that you can't even recognize it when they're doing things that are bad. Right. Something you said made me think about Thomas Brown and witches. Oh, we have to talk about that at some point. Absolutely. I I feel like, I feel like I do need to, I do need to, like I, it's a springboard from your springboard that has no connection, which is a perfect Thomas Brown um, instance, except that we're bad at transitions. But I, so I'm going to read what he says because it's one of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> There's a lot more that I, I should read, but this will be long enough. For my own part, I have ever believed and do now know that there are witches, that they that doubt of these do not only deny them, but spirits, 
and are obliquely, and upon consequence, a sort not of infidels, but atheists. Those that to confute their incredulity desire to see apparitions, so question lest never behold any, nor, um, nor have the power to be so much as witches. The devil hath them already in a heresy as capital as witchcraft, and to appear to them were but to convert them. And I love this because it is a thought that I've had for a long time that I saw someone else tweet recently too, which is that maybe possession's real or whatever, but the surest way to convince someone of God is to have exactly what happens in The Exorcist happen on Main Street, right? Like that o the reason that movie is great is because that demon attacks priests. It's like an interreligious conflict. And I love again that he has preempted this thought by 400 years. <laughs> no, but I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really interesting idea. Of course, it's important to note that Sir Thomas Brown also testified against, two, uh, I think it was two women or people, I guess I don't know for sure if they were women, but two people who were accused of witchcraft who I believe were both put to death. So for all we're talking about how this guy was pretty cool, uh, he did also do that. That was a thing he did. And that's not great. Uh, <laughs> that also makes me think of one of the things C.S. Lewis says about witches in one of his books that I read 20 years ago. Um, he people often he says people often point to the uh, the fact that we don't, you know, do witch trials anymore as a sign of our great growth as a society. And he says, well, sort of, but what it really is, it is not necessarily a moral growth as it is an empirical growth, because we just don't think there are witches, right? Like, the reason we don't burn witches anymore is not because we've decided to not burn witches, it's because we don't believe there are witches. If we actually thought there were people out there who were poisoning the cow's milk and doing all these terrible things, I think you would see some witch burnings, which was, I thought, of an important thought, a helpful thought from C.S. Lewis, well, who's full of a lot of those and also very silly thoughts sometimes. Yeah, well, and also, actually, so it, it also directly anticipates, and who knows with Lewis, who, who read so much, and, of course, this is his period, so he knew Thomas Brown. Oh, yeah, there's no way um, Lewis wasn't incredibly fluent in Thomas Brown. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, but but it directly anticipates Lewis's thing about, um, you know, the, the devil will be happy if you are a materialist who believes there's no spirituality of any kind, or a magician. Either one is fine with him, which is almost like verbatim what you know, Thomas Brown says here, at least the idea is exactly in sync. So I think yeah. again, you know, you see him, you see him just germinating his thoughts all over the place. It's everywhere. He also, not long after this bit about witches talks about how, uh, also there's a lot of stuff we learned from, you know, magic, uh, that we now use in science and that's fine. Don't worry about it. Right. This may have been originally <laughs> revealed by spirits. might've been by angels. Have you thought about that? Could have been angels, yes. but if not angels, yeah, sure. Maybe it was originally revealed by, uh, some sort of dark spirit, but, uh, you know, we've since figured out that we can use it to do useful scientific things and help people. He doesn't talk about this a lot because he doesn't talk about anything a lot in this book, which is not very long, but I, I think it's kind of an interesting way of sort of getting at some of the, but the thing it made me think of is the way so much of the important, like Greek and Roman philosophy, particularly Greek philosophy, as I understand it, makes its way to Europe after the dark, I know nobody wants to say dark ages anymore, but just to, in terms of time frames, through, of course, uh, Islamic scholars, right? Like, that's how you get to, that's how they learned all this stuff, because the Islamic scholars preserved them, and then eventually they made their way back west. Um, like, Thomas Aquinas can't write all the things he wants to write about Aristotle without certain major Islamic scholars whose names I should remember and don't. And what I'm thinking about here is Thomas Brown writing in 16-whatever, talking about all the things he's learned from 
the past, which of course he's an, he's too honest to pretend it isn't, are things he learned from non-Christians, right? And him sort of trying to justify how that's okay right. is an interesting psychological move, right? Um, he doesn't say that out loud in so many words. I don't know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about knowledge that was maybe learned from witches and is now fine. He doesn't really give us a lot of specifics. But I, I can't wonder if that's the sort of thing he's thinking about, right? Don't you think that, like, so he, I do think he's tempted to, like, an over-coherence at times almost? Like what you're saying, right? He wants there to be sort of no wrinkle in 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 the way that everything fits together. You see this even with, um, apparently this is a popular idea at the time in the Renaissance, and they attributed it to, of course, um, antiquity. But, like, the idea of the, the human body as a microcosm, right? That by studying the human body, you sort of do get these insights into cosmological truths, which in, in some ways, if you think of it as, like, they just didn't have, you know, microscopes powerful enough to see into, you know, cellular structure, like cellular structure, waves, particles, lights, all, you know, there's a way in which you get to, like, some universal truths through the body. But the point is, he like, the body was a coherent representation of the universe in some sort of applicable, analogous way. And I think that his thought does tend toward, like, no, you think these two things are at odds but actually maybe it came from devils but of course what they taught us was these material truths which don't need to be connected to satanism they can just be how gunpowder works or whatever um but i think i think right like he's always on the edge of overdoing it right until he says that's just my thought or you know he always kind of like he, he doesn't ever totally sort of um resolve the mystery into into like a, a too neat coherence but i do think he borders on that mistake don't you you think I'd believe that? I think he, so. He is—he's very good about being clear that he's not sure. He's not saying all this necessarily right. These are just what he's thinking about. He's also, particularly at the beginning of the book, really—he says stuff like, "I don't even know if I'll believe this in two months. Don't worry about it," you know, which I think is really funny. That's uh, true. In the little prologue to Religio Medici, where he says, "Look, I wrote this thing and it got around, and I decided to publish the official version to because they got some things wrong or whatever." Um, he says, also, I wrote this a while ago. I don't know if I still believe any of it, which is funny. Um, so I, I think he, he acknowledges his sort of fallible perceptions and that he might be wrong about things. But I do think he he's not he's generally unwilling to leave things messy on purpose. He does say some like weird sort of contradictory things about whether he yeah. likes life or death more, uh, which is really interesting, um, you know. I, you know, I'm not sure there are people who love life as much as I desire death, he says. And then, like, the next page says, but I think you're a ghost if you don't love about love life, you know. Um, obviously, those are not his words exactly, but that's the gist of it. Uh, so I, I, he does leave some things messily sort of on purpose. But I do think he wants to kind of tie everything up in a bow and solve all his problems. He's not very willing to just leave things in tension and say, who knows? Now, he kind of ends up doing it sometimes, particularly in Urn Burial. But I don't think he's doing it. He's not willing to say that's what he's doing. I, I'm reluctant to say he's not doing it on purpose, but he's not willing to say that's what he's doing. So I, I think pretensions towards overcoherence is probably the smarter way to put it. And what I said was, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, what other springboards do you have? So first of all, I forgot to do the second springboard. So Ray Bradbury in the Fire Balloons says these Martians don't have any sin. Uh, of course, C.S. Lewis is out of the Silent Planet is about a bunch of Martians who don't have any sin. Now it's different because they didn't fall in the first place, whereas Ray Bradbury's guys have just transcended the fall. But that's kind of funny, right? Like we're, Mars apparently is where sinless beings live. Uh, who knew? But okay, another uh, sort of springboard I want to do. Uh, just something I. 
I didn't get as personal as I could have earlier. I'm going to do it now. You ready? Let's go. So in Religio Medici, he's talking about something or other, anarchies in heaven and why there aren't those, but then says, again, I am confident and fully persuaded, yet dare not take my oath of my salvation. I am, as it were, sure, and do believe without all doubt, that there is such a city as Constantinople. Yet for me to take my oath thereon were a kind of perjury, because I hold no infallible warrant from my own sense to confirm me in the certainty thereof. Uh, and truly, though many pretend an absolute certainty of their salvation, yet when an humble soul shall contemplate her own unworthiness, she shall meet with many doubts and suddenly find out find how much we stand in need of the precept of St. Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I think this is a really interesting half a paragraph here. Um, for a couple of different reasons. One, I love this this point about how he's fully persuaded by his salvation, but he wouldn't be able to take an oath on it in like the legal sense, right? Like almost like testifying in court, right? Because it's a kind of perjury in the same way that he's quite sure without a doubt that there is such a place as Constantinople, but I've never seen it. And so it wouldn't really be appropriate for me to swear to that in court, right? He doesn't say court, but he uses the word perjury, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's such a, first of all, an interesting idea that like, Yes, I'm 100% certain of my salvation, but I can't, wouldn't be able to swear to it because I can't prove it with my own senses is something that prefigures so many things people have been talking about for so long about faith and science. But it's also because I said this. <laughs> I say this all the time. So for reasons I won't get into, I have been having religious debates lately, which I don't like to do. I don't do it. I don't enjoy them. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Joel, but I used to be kind of a strident, preachy jerk in high school, and so I try to avoid doing that again in my old age. And yet, for again, because I just keep meeting people who are friends with my fiancé and such who want to talk about religion, I keep having to sort of justify why I believe what I believe. That's fine. I should be good at that. That's one of our jobs as Christians. But I actually am rusty and out of practice, right? And one of the lines you always hear is like, well, you can't prove any of this stuff, right? To which I tend yeah. to end up saying, like, well, I can't prove anything. Like, And the thing I have often said is, prove to me right now that Antarctica exists. You can't do it. You haven't been there. I haven't been there. And even if you had been there, you couldn't prove it to me because it would just be your experiences of it, right? This is not necessarily a particularly profound concept. It's something I came up with on a whim once. It hasn't really worked very well for me. But it was funny to see Thomas Brown in 1635 saying basically the same thing. Um, so at least if it's a bad idea, it is not a new one, and that is occasionally satisfying to see. But what's interesting is the way this ends up prefiguring Kierkegaard. Or Kierkegaard is how I was taught to say it, but I actually don't know if that's correct. Right? Not only by referencing the fear and trembling line, but also the way this, and I'm not very good at Kierkegaard, so I'm going to speak at a 10,000 foot view. But the way Kierkegaard, as I recall, ends up saying things about how even if we could prove all this stuff happened beyond a shadow of a doubt, it still wouldn't be sufficient. You would still need faith, right? The, the leap of faith, which is not actually his sentence. It was the qualitative leap is what he called it, but it's been referred to as leap of faith ever since, right? He ends up prefiguring Kierkegaard by 200 years by talking about all these things and specifically hooking it to the line of fear and trembling. And that's neat. That's the whole thought is that's neat that he prefigures this other writer, but he prefigured, who else prefigured James Joyce and Soren Kierkegaard at the same time? Anybody? I can't think of anybody off the cuff. And Walt Whitman. And Walt Whitman, yes. <laughs> and Brene Brown. <laughs> um, no, I, I um I also loved that section. And I actually think we were joking earlier about how it's hard to believe he's not at least somewhat prideful, even by his own standards, by the way, because um what does he say that like uh 
Diogenes, I hold to be the most vainglorious man of his time. Yeah. And more ambitious in refusing all honors than Alexander in rejecting none. So there's a way in which he's already like, he's already called out false modesty, you know? And so that it, it's hard to like call it out and then be like, I, who are, who, who I've decided to tell you everything I believe because it's worth you hearing. I am humble, but, but actually I also like that. And I, I think what he's, when he's talking about, you know, the certainty of your own salvation, again, he must be think you know, he must be thinking in some ways about the, the rising literal Puritanism, not sort of the, the way we use it as like mural Puritanism, but you know, the way in which like you are certain of your faith even though there's predestination, you know, he's not of the puritanical strain. He's of the church of England strain, but church of England is also in the reformed tradition that believes in predestination. All I have to say is, so I think, I feel like he's playing with a certain theological debate there. And yet I, I agree with you. He is sort of gesturing to this Kierkegaardian idea, which, you know, I, I know less than you do, I think, but this idea that the question itself is outside the scope of our knowledge, right? It, it it actually it is like Constantinople, except that Constantinople is not sufficient, <laughs> almost as an example, because it is this certainty that you can have, this inner certainty, but it is obviously outside of our of the scope of our knowledge, because it's a question that goes beyond death, and that you know gestures to literally this transcendent truth. Um, something that goes beyond us. So I don't know, I, but I liked it as well because I also think it is an instance of his, you know, he's such a, like a, he, he must be like the most, you know, he must be the most enjoyable person to talk to because I'm not sure he would take anything seriously, but I also think he's a classic sort of like, I'm just thinking it through sort of rationalist in some ways, you know? <laughs> so in some ways he'd be really annoying to talk to, but I think his point is that, of course I can't ever know. You, 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 you'd be impossible to, and yet, this inner this inner certainty isn't dis, 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 d- diminished by that. It's just not provable. So I don't know. I think your Antarctica example is not terrible, but also I agree with you. I feel like I feel like that's actually one of the ways in which I was convicted by Thomas Brown was I had the question of, you know, is there much point in being a Christian if, because of my past strident, you know, tendencies if I have no inclination to talk about it or even think about some of the trickier parts. Like, is there any point in being a Christian? Because Thomas Brown seems to think there's not. And I, I found that convicting as well, to be honest. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's something I've been struggling with because I'm not, you know... By the way, this is our Christian podcast, apparently. Uh, if this is your first episode, this is not what we're usually like. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're fun. We're, and we usually... We swear more usually, not actually that much. Um, I did say the word j- earlier. That's got to count for something. I'm going to believe that again. Um... But it's something I've been struggling with, exactly like you're saying, is because I, you know, I, I keep having these conversations with people who are very interesting and are just trying to get to know me, right, and and have perfectly reasonable questions, and I just I I'm so reluctant to do it because again I remember exactly as you said, you know, your past, my past, we were, you know, we were friends at the same time, we know, yeah, and yet exactly like you're saying, like what what is the point if I'm not willing to talk about this stuff and I've got to remember how to do this because this can't be a purely sort of private thing that I just have, you know, on the shelf and look at sometimes. This is supposed to be a transformative thing about how I live. And if I'm going to be a writer and someone who talks in public, I probably need to be able to talk about this thing, which is arguably the most important thing in my life, right? Uh, should be, you know, yeah. whether it is or not is a complicated question, but it should be, right? 
Yeah. And uh, it's ugly, though, because I remember preaching at people in high school and saying very silly things. And uh, I haven't read a ton of theology. So I don't know if I always feel equipped <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so I'm laughing because yeah, that, that's always the problem. Is that I was I was I was preaching in ignorance, and I I know barely norm I know barely more now, but I at least have sort of the, you know, the wisdom of not being 15. You know, but I think what Thomas Brown was challenging about was like, even that's not sufficient. It's not have it's not sufficient to kind of have this like, ironical distance from faith, and it's not sufficient to be sort of. Um, ashamed or dismissive of it. Honestly, the part that you read, the very opening, you know, where he says, um, I, I don't hate anyone who won't call themselves a Christian, but I'm like proud to wear that glorious title. Again, he, I mean, Christian at the time he's writing is not of course the same, whatever, scandalous word it can be now in certain circles when oftentimes it has a solely political connotation. Um, Marilyn Robinson's quite good on that subject, but in his own time, I mean, they're killing each other over dogmatic differences, right? And the fact that he doesn't say what kind of Christian he is at the beginning is itself trying to cut through the scandal of religion that he's living through. Um, and he does it so joyfully. I mean, the book was published at the beginning of the English Civil War, but it was written earlier. But it was written in a time of turmoil. You know, the Thirty Years' War was also basically about religion. Um, and so I, I did. I found I found it convicting to, you know, if you can't have a positive, joyful gloss on your own beliefs, what is the point? Even the really tricky belief that I, I have always just kind of shelved as mystery, and I will continue to do so, by the way, but he says, you know, anyone who gets too worked up about predestination, and in a typical fashion, I actually think he also means too worked up in favor or against, he's, he's like, you know, how else are we to describe the eternity of God? God's eternity is like an ever-existing present. So predestination is a human gloss on God's eternal knowledge. It's not meant to be predestined in the way that you would think it was. You're a human. You have A to B. God has this eternal viewpoint that necessitates us talking in predestination terms. Again, that's like the one doctrine that I dislike the most, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that I have avoided the most. And he still gives sort of a positive gloss on it that I can't even do to things I actually like about Christianity. So I, I found that to be personally compelling. And you're right. I am sorry to anyone who's listening to this. But hopefully, I mean, I think people don't wrestle with their beliefs in the way that he does. And I think of whatever belief you are, it would be very beneficial to do so because he is this endlessly curious person. And I think the curiosity is what keeps him humble. It's what keeps him from saying, I know God's viewpoint of my faith. No, of course I don't. I believe in my salvation, but I also believe in Constantinople and I, you know, I haven't been there. So... But yeah, yeah, do you have any other springboards you want to hit, Bill, before we, we head toward the end here? I have a silly one, and then maybe we might come back to something more serious after, depending on what you're thinking. Uh, I, we've been talking a lot more about Religio Medici, and that's fair, because it's the better book. But there's a really funny bit in Urn Burial, when he is talking about how some cultures bury, or or bury their, and, and with the urns, they bury, like, wine, right? Like, liquors, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And there's a very funny bit here, 
when he says, so for, for beside these lacrimatories, which are vials to contain tears, notable lamps with vessels of oils and aromatical liquors attended notable ossuaries, and some yet retaining a venosity and spirit in them, which if any have tasted, they have far exceeded the palates of antiquity. In other words, some of these liquors and wines that they left here are really good because they've been buried for 1,200 years. And that raises the question, did people try that? Did people drink the urn wine? Because don't <laughs> drink guess. the urn wine, right? I feel like that's, I don't believe in curses particularly, but that's that's a cursing. That's an immediate cursing. That is straight to a horror movie, immediately. Which also made me think of a funny thing that happened and something I make fun of video games about. Uh, so this is just a little bit I have. Um, I was playing the great video game Pillars of Eternity 2, which is uh, one of the great uh, role-playing games in the Baldur's Gate tradition of the, you know, isometric, do you have a whole party, you do stuff, we're not going to talk about it, right? But there's a lot of looting of things, right? There's a lot of killing people and taking their stuff, there's a lot of opening chests and people's random dressers and taking the three dollars and, you know, two sprigs of herbs you find in there that you can then turn into a potion you forget about because whoever uses potions in video games if they can avoid it, right? And then, at one point, I was sailing around this archipelago and I went into a little cave, and there was a vampire in the cave. And I killed the vampire, and there wasn't really a lot of plot there, right? This game doesn't really do that very often, but it was just like, here's a vampire, he's surprised you're here, he attacks you. I killed him, <laughs> and I looted his room. And I found, amongst all the like ceremonial daggers and scraps of notes and whatever else, in one of his chests, there was a biscuit, like a single piece of hardtack. Because you're on a ship in the game, right? So you keep... You keep uh, rations and supplies for your crew a single piece of hardtack in this chest in this vampire's cave and so i looted it and it just got mixed in with all the other ship's biscuits i had all the other hardtack and at some point someone in my crew probably ate it and nothing happened because it's a video game and you just find stuff in places right but i really thought about that can you imagine your captain going ashore coming back covered in vampire blood and in addition to distributing the golden treasures just some cookies he found <laughs> and then you're expected to eat that as part of your sort of lot as a crewman on this boat why would you do that why would you ever do that i feel like that's an immediate mutiny right yes and that that's what the burial wine made me think of so that's a very silly tangent but uh, i wanted to, to to give you that that's the nature of thomas brown these, <laughs> these tangents but I, I do think i think i know what your last your last one might be, whether it's a springboard or not, and I, I do think you should talk about it. So the last thing I want to talk about is hell, because why not? It's fun to talk about hell. Um, Brown is not a universalist. Uh, he talks about having been tempted by that before, but he's not. I'm willing to claim that I am a universalist, so I am therefore a heretic in many people's eyes, but that's okay. I haven't read any origin. I've just read David Bentley Hart and was so persuaded by the way he's so mean to everyone who makes fun of him that uh, I decided <laughs> that truly is a man with the... His finger on the pulse of God is a man who can be that mean to other people. That's probably not true, but um, anyway. Uh, he's talking about hell and devils and such, and there's this... So one of the things he wants to talk about is not berating people into becoming Christians, right? He talks about how persecution is a bad way to plant religion and so on, and he's got this sort of spectacular line about... Uh, what it is to be a good Christian and whether you should do so out of a fear of hell. And uh, 
I can hardly think there was ever any scared into heaven. They go the surest way to heaven who would serve God without a hell. Other mercenaries that crouch unto him in fear of hell, though they term him themselves the servants, are indeed but the slaves of the Almighty. And that is a very complicated sentence. But the general point that the surest way to heaven is to serve God without a hell is to do this out of a desire to do what is good and right because that is the good and right thing to do and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind because he is deserving so rather than of fear of hell uh, is, I think, right. I think I agree with that, that that is not the right way to think about it and it's not a very healthy way to live or a very healthy way to, I think, be a Christian to do so solely out of fear of hell. And right before that, right around there, he says that he, he fears God but he is not afraid of him which is a really interesting phraseology there as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, but he's, I have no, I have fixed, I've so fixed my contemplations on heaven that I have almost forgot the idea of hell, and I'm rather afraid to lose the joys of the one than endure the misery of the other. To be deprived of them is a perfect hell, and needs me thinks no addition to complete our afflictions. That terrible term hath never detained me from sin, nor do I owe any good action to the same thereof. And then I fear God, yet I'm not afraid of him. His mercies make me ashamed of my sins before his judgments afraid thereof. These are the forced and secondary method of his wisdom, and which he useth not but as the last remedy and upon provocation, a course rather to deter the wicked than incite the virtuous to his worship. Um, and again, I, I think that's generally correct. And right around the same time, he also says that uh, every devil is a hell unto himself because he holds enough torture in his own soul that uh, he, you know, every, every moment is torture, and uh, who can but pity the devil because he can't kill himself even though he would like to because his miseries are endless. Uh, and I just, I don't know, I think that's good. And also makes me think of some of Lewis's screw tape letters and stuff, but yeah. No, you can see, you, you can see why he'd be tempted to universalism as a younger man. You know, it makes, it makes sense, and I think, I think that stood out to me as well. And I think it, I think it's impossible not to conclude that, like, his version of God, his vision of God, it is similar to most universalists, which is, you know, essentially that the love of God sort of surpasses all other aspects of God. And it's, it's hard not to, again, this is what I was saying earlier, actually. It's hard not to appreciate someone who looks directly into the hardest doctrines of his faith, of his beliefs, of whatever. And he does sort of, he does continually find um, a positive gloss on them, not as a spin kind of doctor, but as someone who has chosen to continue, you know, indebting himself to the good. I, I find it, uh, frankly, in you reading those passages, you know, in your, your, your beautiful voice, Bill, I, uh, I, I find that very inspirational, to be honest. And I, I really, yeah, I'm really glad you, you brought us to that point. Um, is there anything else that you want to hit before we are calling it a, a night? I don't know as I have anything else specific or we'll be here all night. Um, what I would say in some is this is a very good book to read, I think, if you're a Christian, not because you'll agree with everything in it necessarily, but just because it's good to see somebody working through his own faith and that might help you work through your own. But I think it is a good book to read regardless of your personal religious or philosophical commitments or even if you have any, because it is good to watch someone be working through his own faith with this level of uh, care and precision in his language and uh, perhaps we have not said the words his prose is beautiful enough we've read a lot of it but his prose is beautiful and just watching someone who is a, just a master of the language try to work through his own thoughts uh, this honestly I think is really valuable regardless of what your philosophical religious convictions are and it's uh, it's an interesting 
you know, it's interesting to see him dealing with all these debates, like I've said, 350 years before now. Um, and uh, also, he invented a lot of cool words, and Arthur Machen liked him, and he was never wrong. That's not true. Arthur Machen was wrong all the time. <laughs> but... Well, let me let me instead of instead of ending on your your beautiful hell note, let me also end us on uh, an upbeat where I believe that he embodies the latter life of Tolstoy. <laughs> Thomas Brown writes, "I could be content that we might procreate like trees without conjunction, or that there were any way to perpetuate the world without this trivial and vulgar way of coition. It is the foolish act." A wise man commits in all his life. With that, Bill, um, I'll let you wrap us up. Between that and the statement you made earlier about how some of his flippancy towards death is probably helped by the fact that he's, you know, doesn't have a family at this point. I would say that I like Thomas Brown, but he is also a very clear depiction of what the youths are referring to because of the video game Elden Ring as maidenless behavior. (laughs) (laughs) Accurate. All right. I don't think I have anything else, man, but it was really good talking to you. Uh, We're going to do another podcast at the end of this year, um, and I guess we can announce it. Yeah, we're going to do Tristram Shandy, which is uh, is supposed to be really wild. Uh, What, 18th century novel? Spends like 200 pages when the narrator hasn't even been born yet. It's supposed to be a deeply wild novel from the age when... Uh, the tropes of novels hadn't, or the tropes and structure of novels hadn't been solidified enough yet to make departure from them interesting, such that when you go read these things, they're so deeply wild because, again, they hadn't figured out what these even looked like yet. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, that'll be sometime in December. We may do another secret podcast at some point, but as always, we will not uh, tell you about that until it happens, so that if we don't do it, you don't feel disappointed. Um, uh, thanks, as always, for listening, folks, and uh, Joel, again, thanks so much for talking about this uh, really strange and really wonderful set of essays. Have a good night, man. You too, Bill. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.